So I want to start out uh, tonight with a question for you. Here's the question. What's your problem? Now this cat probably means that in a sarcastic and rhetorical way because that's the way cats are. But I'm asking it in a very serious and rhetorical way, which means I want you to think about the answer to that question. What is your problem? What is it in your life that most needs to change? What needs to get fixed? Or what is your problem? Now, obviously, we most, most of us all have more than one problem in our lives, right? Um, we have more than one thing that needs to change. Some of our problems are pretty small and easy to deal with. But we also have bigger problems. Uh, maybe financial problems, or physical health problems, or mental health problems, relationship problems, parenting problems, school problems, work problems. Some of your problems are too big for you to handle on your own. Um, yeah, the big problems in your life are not things that you can do on your own. We all need help, and it's good to get some help. But what's the most important problem in your life? What is the problem that if you don't figure out this one, it doesn't really matter much what happens to the rest of the problems in your life? Why, and why is this an important question for you to get right? Why do we need to get the correct answer to this? Because you are going to arrange your life according to how you answer this question. And a lot of the times, we don't get the answer right, and so our lives are not focused on the correct problem. See, if we think our biggest need is financial, then we're going to prioritize earning money, paying off debts, spending within our means, investing for the future. But if we think our biggest problem is our health, then we're going to focus on diet and exercise and regular checkups and taking your vitamins and getting enough sleep and all those kinds of things. Now, of course, none of us want financial problems or health problems, so we take steps to prevent them. But what happens when they come into conflict? Which one is really the priority in your life? Are you willing to create financial problems for yourself in order to join the Alaska Club and stay healthy? Or are you willing to sacrifice your health in order to work a lot of overtime and make a lot of money? You see, how, how we answer this question, what is your problem, is important to answer correctly, to know which one should be our priority and what is the most important thing we need to be dealing with in our lives. But here's the thing, a lot of the times, we don't do a very good job of figuring out the correct answer. Barry Glasser has written a book called The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. And this book highlights a human tendency to be afraid of things that are incredibly unlikely while we blissfully ignore the real perils that are all around us. For instance, a survey showed that 20% of Americans say that they're afraid of being murdered by a stranger. But actually, that only happens to about two in every 100,000 Americans. That's a 0.002% chance that it will happen. The chances that it would be one of these active shooter, uh, mass shooting things are even a whole lot less than that. I don't know exactly what it would be, but 0. 0.0000 something percent. And yet we're afraid of those things. 
Now, anybody know what this uh, picture here is? This is called an execu-chute. And it is a kind of a low-altitude parachute. And the idea is that if you're in a high-rise building and it catches on fire or something like that so you can't get out, you can put this thing on and jump out your office window and land safely. And uh, this company and several others like it sprang up, of course, after 9-11, and they sold these things for between $795 and $2,000. No one has ever used one. So you know what you should be afraid of? You should be afraid of using your phone while you're driving. Or you should be afraid of other people who use their phones while they're driving on the same road that you're on. Because in 2018, there were 4,637 distracted driving deaths in the US. That means that on average, uh, every day, more than 12 people are killed and also more than 1,000 injured in auto accidents caused by distracted driving. But most of us aren't very afraid of that. What's the point? The point is that we are generally pretty bad at identifying what are the most important problems in our lives. So one of our key problems is that we don't know what our key problems are. And even when we get the facts right and we, we sort things out and we know really, okay, this is what I really need to do, that thing is not really, so we still have a hard time organizing our lives according to the real facts. But God, in the Bible, has given us a lot of guidance on these issues. Uh, God has shown us what our biggest problem is and how we can eliminate it. Not just uh, reduce the problem or, 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 or make it a little bit better, but we can eliminate our biggest problem. And all those problems that we talked about so far, health problems, relationship problems, financial problems, none of those are your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is sin. Especially the fact that our sin makes us guilty before God and liable to judgment. And that is the problem that God, the Bible, and Christianity are all about. And if we fail to understand that this is our real need and that if we don't solve this problem, then all the rest of our problems don't really matter, then we will live our lives focusing on the wrong things. We will miss the most important thing in our lives. Now, God communicates this idea all through the Bible, but the foundation is laid right back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And that's where we're going to, to focus uh, uh, now. Um, last week, Pastor Mike laid the foundation for this series uh, on the God who is there by uh, teaching us about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the creation of the universe. The Bible begins with the greatest foundational statement of all time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that simple statement has so many important implications. So if you weren't with us last week, you should go back, listen to Mike's sermon online. Uh, get that Clearwater app so you can listen to the sermons there. Um, but I want to start reading today 
uh, from the end of Genesis chapter 1, and then I'm going to hit some key verses from chapter 2. So here's what it says. It says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, after that, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden for some time, and things were perfect. Life was easy. They had nothing to feel badly about. They enjoyed perfect relationships with each other and with God. Perfect. Everything was very good. By the way, I take this story of Adam and Eve as an accurate, historical, true account. Um, some of the details in Genesis and the early chapters, uh, I, I'm, I'm not as sure. Uh, maybe some of them are symbolic stories, uh, and I'm not sure whether to take some as symbolic stories or historical accounts. But I am certain that we are given only a very partial story of the events of the early days of creation. But whether the stories are historical, symbolic, or both, I take all of it to be true. But this part about the first human couple and the rest of the events we're going to read about this morning, this part is historical fact. So how long did Adam and Eve live a perfect life in the garden? We don't know. Maybe just a few weeks, maybe many years. The Bible doesn't say, but we do know how it ended. See, the next part is the introduction of the conflict in the story. And by the story, I don't just mean the story of Adam and Eve. I mean the story, uh, the great story of all of mankind. And here it is. Here's the introduction of the conflict in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said, so what is he asking here? Is he testing Eve's memory? No. Satan knows that Eve knows what God said. His question is more along the lines of, can you believe that God actually told you that you can't eat from the trees? It's a challenge, not a question. Right? He's saying something like, how could God be so restrictive and lame? Not, uh, can you remember what God said? Did God say that? No, he's challenging God's restriction. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And now Satan goes beyond trying to twist God's words, and he flat out denies the truth. 
you will not certainly die. You see, God cannot be trusted, says the serpent. He says you will die, but it isn't true. Here's the real reason that God told you not to eat the fruit. He says, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He says, here's God's real motive. It's that he knows that you could be like God if you eat it. You can know good and evil the way God knows good and evil. You can be more than you are. God is trying to limit you and prevent you from being autonomous beings that make their own determinations about good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, both Adam and Eve have failed the test. They both believed Satan and their own judgment rather than trusting God. And that is really the heart of sin. God had declared good and evil. There wasn't much evil for him to declare at this point. In fact, he had said that everything was very good. But there was one thing that was kind of a potential evil. Uh, he told Adam that if he ate from the tree, that would be bad. It's the only evil thing in all creation. The one thing that they couldn't do. Now, here, the question, you know, why was eating this fruit evil? Was there something about the fruit, some kind of spiritual poison in it? Was there some kind of chemical substance in the fruit that changed Adam and Eve's brain chemistry? Some people think that this whole part of the story is just a symbol, that there was no real fruit, and that eating the forbidden fruit is a metaphor for some other kind of sin. That's possible, but I don't see any reason to conclude that. Um, and I can't see anything that's intrinsically wrong with eating that particular fruit from that particular tree. Adam and Eve couldn't see anything wrong with it either. But what I do know, and what they knew, is that God said not to eat it. So, here's the question. Do you trust God to know what is good and what is bad? Exactly. Exactly. So God has forbidden it, and whether we understand why or not, do we trust him to get the answer correct? Does he actually know what is good and what is evil, or are we better at figuring out what is good and evil than he is? So we need to trust God. But, you know, when you read the Bible and you see that God did things, like he sent the plagues on the Egyptians including the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Do we then say, I will be the judge of whether or not God was right to do that? 
Or do we look at the behaviors and attitudes that God has prohibited in the Bible and we say, I will be the judge of whether God was correct to label that action as evil. There's a corollary question that goes along with this one. Maybe God knows what's good for me, but he doesn't want me to have it. Maybe God has reasons for wanting to deny me what would really be the best for me. And that question goes something like this. Uh, Do you trust God to want what is best for you? And this seems to be where Adam and Eve were. They knew enough about God to know that he was immeasurably wise. He knew whether eating the fruit would be good for them or not. But what were God's motives for forbidding it? Was it for their own good or was it to prevent them from becoming like him? To prevent them from knowing good and evil and becoming wise like he was. Maybe God knew that it would be beneficial for Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, but he didn't want them to benefit. Maybe in order to keep his unique status, he wanted to deny Adam and Eve what would really make them all that they could be. He wanted to ruin their fun. You see, they saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, and so they took some and ate it. They couldn't see any reason why God had forbidden it. In fact, it seemed to not just be harmless, but good, pleasing, and desirable. And this is true of so many of our temptations, right? Some things that God has forbidden, we can easily see why God said no. You know, we can see why they were, uh, what the harm is. God says, don't commit murder. Very understandable. I get it. We shouldn't commit murder. Um, no question that God got that one right. But what about some of our other temptations? God's rules about sex, limiting it only to marriage between men and women. That seems overly restrictive to many people. What's wrong with consensual sex for unmarried people? Well, whether we can see God's reasons or not, do we trust God when he declares that some things are off limits? Or do we say that we will be happy to obey God's commands when we understand them and we can see why he has forbidden those things and we agree with his reasons, but if we can't see the reason for God to rule it out, uh, then, or if we disagree with the reasons that we can see, then we'll just reject God's declaration of good and evil and we'll make our own choice. See, that's what Adam and Eve did. By their actions, they said, we are better judges of what is right for us to do than God is. The fruit is good, pleasing, and desirable, and we don't trust God's prohibition. And so they rebelled against God and they ate the forbidden fruit. And the consequences were swift. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, they suddenly felt shame and guilt and made a pathetic attempt to try to cover up. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That was really good, Adam. Yeah, throw, throw your wife under the bus there. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve doesn't do much better than Adam here, uh, even though Satan probably does deserve to get thrown under the bus. But anyway, uh, both of them try to dodge the responsibility for their sin. They don't say that they're sorry. They don't confess their guilt. They make excuses. I hope that they came to accept responsibility later on. The Bible doesn't tell us that story, but we do know that they lived long lives after this, and very little of the story is told. So I'm, I'm hopeful that they came around eventually. But at this point, they were unwilling to accept responsibility for their guilt. So guys, don't be like Adam. Don't blame your sins on your wife. And ladies, don't be like Eve. Don't blame your sins on snakes. <laughs> or on your husband, or your kids, or your mom, or whatever. Take responsibility for your actions. So God turns to the serpent, and he doesn't ask him to confess. He just pronounces the curse. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, Adam and Eve might have been thinking at this point, hey, God agrees. It really wasn't our fault. It was the serpent's fault. <laughs> We're going to be okay after all. But then God turns to Eve. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the meaning of that second part of the curse has been much debated. Uh, here's what it seems to mean. It seems to be that, that women will seek to control their husbands, and they, in turn, will seek to dominate their wives. And there'll be conflict in marriage to see who can get their way. In that uh, conflict directly, now not all marriages uh, are, are, are in that uh, conflict directly all the time, but that is our natural sinful tendency that we have to resist is to try to uh, control and dominate one another. It's a strong tendency in all of our relationships. See, part of the curse of sin is that our relationships, and especially the marriage relationships, are corrupted by this selfish desire to control and dominate. And then to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. 
You see, while they were living in the garden, they had work to do. They, they, they tended the garden. They cared for the things there. God had already instructed them to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over creation. But all of that had been relatively easy and pleasurable work compared to what Adam had to deal with now. Everything had become more difficult for him. Adam and Eve's sin had affected the whole earth, not only themselves. The ground itself is cursed because of them. In Romans, the Bible puts it like this. It says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The whole creation is cursed, subject to frustration, and held in bondage to decay because of the entry of sin into the world. This is why we have earthquakes, hurricanes, droughts, and mosquitoes. And this is why cancer eats away at our bodies. And all the best-tasting foods make us fat or cause heart disease, or both. We are living in a cursed world. And the curse is our fault. And yes, of course, the, sin, the, the, the curse began with Adam and Eve's sin, not mine and yours. However, by our actions, we have clearly shown that we are rebels just like they were. The curse brings pain, broken relationships, a frustrated creation full of disasters and diseases. But that's not the worst of it. There's two more consequences. Uh, he says, until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Just as God had warned them, when they ate from the forbidden fruit, they became subject to death. Not instant death, but the process of aging sickness, and death. In Romans, the Bible says that through Adam's sin, death came to all men. Death is not a natural part of life. We are not meant to die. Life is not meant to be full of pain and suffering. These things are the unnatural result of our unnatural marring of the created order through sin. And the last verse of Gen from uh, Genesis 3 gives us the last of the curse and also words of hope. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The banishment from the garden was more than just a banishment from a nice source of food and a pleasant home. It was a banishment from the presence of God. In the garden, people had had perfect fellowship with God as he walked and talked with them. But now they were sinful and that fellowship was broken. We could never be with God again unless something was done to remove our sinfulness because God is holy and we are are not. And in fact, when this physical life is over, 
The consequences of our sin is eternal separation from God in hell. Because of our rebellion against God, we have been banished from his presence. But there is also hope here. It says that God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where did God get the leather? Animals died sacrificially so that Adam and Eve could cover their shame and and have their shame covered by God. Now, obviously, this was largely a symbolic thing. Putting on some kind of skin clothing does not really do anything to their shame and guilt. But the fact that a sacrifice was made in order to cover them carried a lot of, uh, 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 of symbolism. And of course, the symbolism is not very clear here if all we have is Genesis chapter 3. But actually, this isn't the first place uh, where this kind of idea of hope and, and a possibility of salvation comes up, even here in Genesis 3. It's also in verse 15, where God is speaking to the serpent, and, and, and he says uh, that the offspring of the woman will crush his head, though Satan will strike his heel. Now, again, the symbolism isn't very clear at this point, but when we read more of the Bible, we can see what is going on here in this passage, which is that it is hinting at what is coming up later. It's foreshadowing the future. When Adam and Eve uh, sin, God sees that they have really messed things up. They are doomed and as are all of their offspring, including me and you. See, that is our biggest problem. You and I are doomed by our sin. We are sinful people and members of a sinful race. And unless that problem is solved, we will stand at the final judgment and we will be condemned to hell. And if that happens... How much will we care about the other problems that we had in our lives that we put so much time and effort into solving? How much will it matter if we were financially stable when we died? How much will it matter if we were healthy and lived until we were 100? You have one huge problem that needs to be solved. And here's the thing. Your attempts to fix it are like Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. Even if you manage to construct a pretty nice leaf loincloth, you haven't really dealt with the problem. We need the offspring of the woman to crush Satan's head. We need God to cover us with a sacrifice. And both of those things are done through Jesus. See, Jesus is the offspring of the woman who puts an end to Satan's plan to doom us all to hell. He is the sacrifice who dies in our place to cover our sins and save us from our punishment. And when we put our faith in him, we are freed for just as the guilt of sin. Romans chapter 5 puts it like this. It says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners... And that's a reference to Adam and the sin that we've been discussing. So also, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
And that's Jesus and the salvation that is available to us through faith. We can be made righteous. Our sins can be erased and we can be welcomed back into the presence of God because God has provided the sacrifice to cover our sins. And so you can eliminate the greatest problem in your life. You can be declared righteous by God. You don't have to suffer the consequences of your sin. I want to end by asking you three questions for reflection. First question is, are you living your life according to this truth? Have you put your faith in Jesus for your salvation? And do you live as if this is true for everyone so that you need to help those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus to find salvation? 